Hello, it's so good to have you with us here at Leadership for Sustainability. This is the podcast where we share our experience to help you draw on the best in human nature and work with the rest of nature so your sustainability initiatives deliver results and make a real difference in the world. I'm Osbert Lancaster, longtime sustainability coach, consultant and trainer and co-founder of Realize Earth. What are the key skills that you need to create change, build relationships and bring people with you when you're leading on sustainability in your organisation? To take us through these skills, I'm joined today by Realize Earth co-founder Richard Prophet. Rich doesn't just draw on his experience of leading on sustainability at PepsiCo. He also talks about his research into sustainability leadership while studying his master's at Ashridge. Rich, what led you to doing that research? Why did you feel it was so important? Every time I was presented with a corporate competency model, I was just like, oh, this is so tedious. It's just, it's just like, not me. It didn't feel authentic to me, my passion, what I was trying to work for. And it just didn't seem relevant. And so I was thinking, well, there's got to be more than that. And that's where, you know, as Ashridge, I came across the idea of relational practice and these different dimensions and aspects of skill sets that are softer skill sets that are common in actually creating change and building relationships and taking people with you. And these things are actually successful through soft skills, not hard skills and knowledge and technical expertise. So, so that's really where it started from. And as a team trying to affect change within PepsiCo, what we regularly did was held retrospectives or debriefs where we were picking apart, well, what worked, what didn't work? You know, if we've created an intervention or a, you know, an idea for a change, why didn't that work? And where it did work, it was like, well, why Why was that one different? That's, so that's successful when something else failed. And what we started finding was when things were successful, there's a common set of factors. And in all those cases, the things that we identified were the soft skills that made the difference, not, not the technical expertise or the knowledge or the hierarchy power dynamics and stuff. It was, it was those soft skills of engaging and they did that commitment and the collaboration and things. And so we started to pull out and, and identify what those soft skills were. And lo and behold, the things that we were identifying, you know, the research backed up, you know, I was looking at people like Joyce Fletcher and Patricia Shaw's work and Dexter Dumphy's work. There was these consistent themes coming up, which was also being mirrored in what we were actually practically seeing on the ground. And so the research I was doing kind of coalesced with what we were seeing on the ground. Um, and bluntly looping it back to those competency models, these, these soft skills that we were identifying felt completely authentic to me and natural, you know, more about being human um, rather than an artificial set of competencies that you define success by, by something artificial that someone's imposed on you rather than defining success on allowing your innate human nature and competency to emerge and flourish. And so that, that's really what was behind it all. And it seemed to me from a competency perspective that if you can harness and encourage and promote innate skills that sit within somebody and get them to be successful and powerful in their role with what's innate within them, it seems much better than saying the only way you can succeed in an organization is ticking these five things that someone from Harvard or Boston Consulting Group has said are important to this organization, as opposed to what's important to you for you to be successful in your role. It just felt a much more authentic approach to leadership competency. 
So at, you know, at Realize Earth the last few years, we've been using the sustainability leadership skill set that you, you developed in our programs, but we've recently switched to using the inner development goals. Not surprisingly, it turns out they're very similar. And the reason we've switched is because they just have recognition globally. I'll just say a bit about where the framework comes from is that the inner, inner development goals have been developed by a team of international researchers. Really what they were coming from was realizing that in order to tackle these increasingly complex environmental and, and social challenges to achieve the sustainable development goals, the framework they've come up with is this idea of there are five main dimensions and a number of skills and qualities that are especially crucial for leaders who are working on the sustainable development goals. So rather than digging further into the framework that you created, let's jump now to the inner development goals framework. So maybe you could talk us through that framework from a perspective of leading a sustainability team. Give us an overview and then pick out some of those skills and attributes that you believe are most important. Of course, not surprising, the IDGs are similar to my work. I think some of the authors of IDG were some of the authors I studied back at the time, you know, Peter Senge and Otto Sharma and, uh, and the like were all part of, you know, my research back during my master's program anyway. And it's broken down effectively into five dimensions, which look at different aspects of your sort of skill set. And within those five, there's 23 sort of skills or qualities that come together to form each of those dimensions. So the first one is being, you know, a sense of being, which is which is really driven around a relationship with yourself. And this becomes really important because from that purpose and passion perspective, you need to have a real good grasp and understanding of who you are so that you can be authentic with yourself and use that as a source of power for your interventions and work that you're going to do. Within that sort of sense of being and relationship with yourself, there's skills and qualities such as having an inner compass that sort of um, moral leadership in terms of what is right and what is wrong um, and having a strong sense of what that is becomes quite important and actually it, it affects other aspects in terms of whether your instinct is indicating whether something is appropriate or inappropriate. There's also integrity with yourself so that you kind of have a sense of to what extent you're having to compromise your own morals or values in pursuit of creating the change but having that sense and that barometer of how much you're having to balance um having an open learning mindset becomes important being open to different possibilities and then there's that broad general sort of self-awareness piece that this stuff all coalesces around and also what Peter Senge and Otto Sharma call presence and they've, they've written a good book about it called presence but presence is effectively being in the here and now and being present with whatever's going on and sort of letting go of judgment pre-judgment and reactive thinking and it all comes together as this way of being within an organization um that was quite wordy in terms of one of the dimensions this form that's, that's, that's the first dimension being yeah. relationship self okay yeah. let's let's speed up okay i mean the second dimension is thinking and cognitive skills so this is possibly more traditional and conventional to what we're used to and most of our education systems around the world are based on developing cognitive skills. So this includes things like critical thinking, uh, perspective skills, sense-making, and long-term orientation and visioning. Now, I think within this, there is another one which is around complexity awareness. And this is possibly taking us into the post-conventional. You know, a lot of this work that we do takes into account complexity and that actually the interrelationships between things is incredibly complicated and complex and so having an awareness of that complexity becomes important 
often it can become a source of overwhelm because these things are so complex. So with complexity comes the need to develop comfort with uncertainty because these things are more complex than you can probably comprehend. So you have to be uncertain or comfortable with the uncertainty of actually not knowing what's going to happen. And there's a really strong realization that needs to take place with most people is they can't actually control everything. And to think you can is a myth. So you need to be comfortable with the idea that we don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but that's okay. And at the same time, creating interventions, uh, you can use that to your advantage. You don't know what's going to happen. So actually you can try a little intervention, which might grow and escalate into something bigger and more powerful. I'd like to take a moment just now to let you know about our next event. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that most people are concerned about climate change and would like to make more sustainable choices in their lives. Despite this open door, most business sustainability initiatives fail to engage staff, and as a result, they miss their targets. The reason is that most initiatives don't pay enough attention to what genuinely motivates colleagues, nor do they recognise the barriers that hold back even the most highly motivated employees from taking action. On Wednesday the 22nd of May, join me and Jamie, the creator of the Most Sustainable Workplace Index, and learn how the index can help you tap into and unlock most employees' latent motivation to do the right thing for people and planet. You'll discover how the index can help you to gather hard evidence of what's working and what needs attention across locations and divisions and seniority levels. You'll identify the focus areas where the sustainability team, L&D, HR and so on, should allocate time and resources to make the most progress. And you'll discover how you can demonstrate year-on-year progress with consistent and comparable data on sustainability culture. And you can use that for action planning, reporting, benchmarking and accreditation. Do join us on Wednesday the 22nd of May. You'll find the link in the show notes. Right, I'm going to move on because there's loads. Um, relating. So this is about relationships with others. So it's caring for more than yourself. So this is a relationship with your peers, your community, your other team members, the rest of the organization. But it goes beyond human relationships as well. And it goes into the natural environment, the ecosystem that you're operating in, having a care for the natural environment, for the organisms and the animals that that you share the planet with, the interrelationship that exists between organisms and animals all become relevant and important to you and should be important to the organisation because there's very little in this world that happens without a healthy relationship with nature. Um, And if we have an unhealthy relationship with nature or a damaged relationship with nature, it's only going to come back and punish us in one way or another. But these things include skills and qualities such as appreciation, a sense of connectedness, um, empathy and compassion for those other things. But it also includes humility, you know, accepting that humans or yourself within that context is not actually the most important thing here. Um, and letting go of that sense of individualistic and species ego that um, is probably over-dominant in in a lot of our cultural paradigms at the moment. Right, collaboration skills is the next one. These are sort of social skills. So this, again, is things people are probably familiar with. There's things like communication skills, um, building trust, uh, mobilization skills to take others with you, creating enthusiasm and a movement, Um, but also includes co-creation skills. So this is the idea where actually 
uh, a team of people can co-create solutions that will be more effective than if it's designed developed by an individual leader who has responsibility for developing a strategy. Why would one person have all the answers when a team of five or 10 don't? And actually, I think you're more likely to find solutions and answers by drawing on the experience and collective wisdom of 10 people than you are just relying on one person. Um, but also communication skills, coming back to that, I think what becomes important with communication skills, it isn't communication skills. The real power in this one is actually in listening skills. If you switch that on its head and actually listen significantly more than you're talking or communicating, you will pick up um, the nuances that become really important for creating change and interventions. And one of my colleagues once sort of said, and I think this comes from Bill Torbett's work, inquiry over advocacy is significantly more powerful. You know, if you're inquiring and asking questions, you will elicit much more information than if you're advocating a position. Because usually if you're advocating a position, you actually just get someone's back up and create resistance. So if you can spin it into inquiry, you can actually start drawing out what's important to them, what's important for you. And then from that, um, the potential collaboration can spark. Uh, final one then, acting and enabling change. Uh, so this is actually putting stuff into, into that action. And there's things like creativity and optimism are all really important to make these happen. But I think what also becomes really important within this is courage uh, and perseverance. It's never going to be an easy road trying to create the sort of change we need. And so you need that courage and perseverance uh, to really keep pushing, um, to keep going, to try again and try again, um, and to be brave in your interventions. Um, you know, as, as someone once said to me, he says, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, and at the time it was like, well, they could sack me. And it was just like, okay. You know, and at the time I was thinking about moving on anyway. So they, so they were like, what's the worst? They could sack you? Well, you want to go anyway. And actually what was really interesting is that the more provocative I got, the more people would listen to me and want my support on delivering change. Because often in big corporates, um, there's maybe a culture of fear or not wanting to rock the boat not wanting to fall out of line. And so often if you're provocative and speak your truth, you're saying stuff that other people are not prepared to say, but the senior leadership wants to or needs to hear. And so often it's actually welcome when you think it's not going to be. So, so courage and perseverance, I think, are key ones from the acting perspective. Of those lists that sit within the IDG, I, th I think they're all really valid, but there would be one that's not on there that I would add. And I'm going to, with humility, just offer an additional one. And I think what's missing is opportunism. Okay, we need to be aware to opportunities that arise that are not planned for. And we need to take advantage of them when they come. You know, it could be seen as, you know, lighting many, many fires to see which ones catch. Um, and then you follow the bigger fires, because you don't know where your interventions are going to be successful. So create lots of interventions, identify which ones seem to be gaining traction, and then pursue those further. And I, I think linked to that as well as is go with the path, path of least resistance. You know, if something's too hard, it probably is. So try something easier, particularly in the early days when you're a small team and you're trying to gain momentum and trust. Um, it's easier to go where the energy is until you can get that momentum going and then you can start building and picking up 
um, some of the challenges. So, so I would add, and I'd bundle those all into that sort of opportunism, and I would I would throw that into there somewhere as well as part of those skill sets. Thanks, Rich, for guiding us through the inner development goals and for the addition of opportunism. There's a lot of information there. It's a lot to take in, but you'll find a summary of the key points, links to some of the books Rich mentioned, and to the inner development goals in the show notes at realize.earth108. In the next episode, Rich will be talking about how you can get started developing your sustainability team. If you'd like to discuss any of the issues raised in the podcast, or to ask any questions about leadership for sustainability, you're in luck. We're about to launch a series of events where you can join us to do exactly that. To make sure you don't miss the details, and to get notified when a new episode comes out, sign up for our newsletter at realize.earth. I'm Osbert Lancaster, and I hope this episode of Leadership for Sustainability will help you lead on sustainability in your organization. You'll find additional resources, masterclasses, and programs on our website at realize.earth. That's realize with an S. What you're doing is so important now more than ever. Keep up the good work and be sure to look after yourself. Bye for now.